Captain Picard, priority one message from Starfleet coming in on secured channel. Am I ready, Roman? And welcome to the Readier Room, not to be confused with The Orb. This is the only TNG rewatch podcast with actual onset insights from those who are there to see the magic happen. My name is Mitchell Mells, Chief Consultant of Services to the Stars at Paramount Industries back at the 80s. And alongside me is my life partner, Brandon Hobbs, Head of Resources Management, who I worked alongside then and now. Together, we're here to recap the show that we love and share some nuggets of unknown behind-the-scenes lore and data along the way. Brandon, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Mitchell. It's uh, it's great to be here. It's great to be talking about the show again. It's been a um, while, hasn't it? It's 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 a trip down memory lane, really. And I mean, obviously, we were there on the set the whole time, um, but it's it's completely different watching it. You know, watching the finished product, which I, I mean, even back then, I, I don't think I watched every single episode. Right. I don't think anybody dared, except like you know, the, the <laughs> I mean, hardcore Trekkies. I suppose. Yeah. I mean, the the the, the real fans, yeah. the real fans, right? Which, I mean, just being on set, you know, there, there were there was an episode here and there where you kind of got the full picture just by watching it play out. Um, but going back and um and and watching the show as it is now, uh, so many memories coming back. It, it really, it's 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 been it's been great. It really just felt like it was time, you know. It it was time yeah, to yeah. have a TNG uh, rewatch podcast. Um, right, right, because because no one's ever done this before. Right. I mean, I, like we're breaking new ground here. It's new ground, and hopefully, we can share some new information along the way. Uh, my hope is that everybody who listens to this podcast comes away with it thinking, "Wow, I didn't know that. This is really exciting," because. The, the true magic is what was off the camera, you know? Any, right. Anybody right, yeah. who was involved in a production will tell you that. Exactly. And I, I personally hope that, that we can... This is going to be a, a, a service to the fans. I hope the fans are really going to enjoy this. A love letter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, so... Like all good things, I suppose... See what I did there... <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. You got to start at the good. beginning. And the beginning for TNG is Encounter at Farpoint Station, Episode 1 and 2, otherwise known as The Pilot, which is a is a truly fascinating place to start with for the next generation for Star Trek. Um, you can watch it with these two different points of view. You can watch it thinking, like, this is a brand new product, another installment of this franchise, but I don't really know very much about it, these characters, whatever. Or you can watch it with the foreknowledge of where it goes and where it ends and what TNG is as a whole, and this is just how it's beginning. And depending on your point of view, it really works or doesn't work in um, a number of different ways, um, which I think the ways it don't work, it doesn't work, are more interesting to me so the the first place i want to start it um is by talking about the characters in this episode because this is our introduction to them and the characters are such a focal point of tng as a whole and 
when you're introduced to so many of the characters here and you have the the again that the foreknowledge of what they become it's almost baffling in a way and nowhere is this more clear than with picard so what what did you think of picard's introduction where we see him really first? because because picard i was going to say i thought i thought picard was the most consistent what really yeah yeah uh, what did you think was wrong with picard well they so they do establish some of picard's character traits that carry through the whole series um for example, like, oh, Picard doesn't like children, or he's not good with them. You know, whatever. He's he's kind of bristly. He bristles. And, yeah, I, it's like, oh, I understand where that came from now. But at the same time, well, he's... So, so, yeah. Sorry, I, I was going to say that the um, his, his hatred of children, in particular, that being a defining character trait, that was a little on the nose when, when Picard turns and looks at the camera and says, I don't like children. He does call Riker into his uh, ready room explicitly to tell uh, him, by the way, I don't like children. And Right, right. Yeah. Very, very expository kind of scene that, it, I don't know, it was a little heavy-handed, but sorry, continue, continue. It. The thing is, though, that everybody has a pretty uh, well-known fondness for Jean-Luc Picard. Like, he's one of the more well-liked captains of the whole franchise. And when you see him here, he's like this crotchety old man who's just like an asshole to everybody. And he's not really um, likable in many ways. Uh, nor is he particularly um, ingenious or you know good in a jam. Like, the events of this episode kind of play out without him really doing a whole bunch like an away team goes and they discover everything and they come back and tell Picard and it's like one obvious conclusion so if he's not going to be likable and he's not going to be uh productive or efficient it's like what is he doing as captain like why why should I care about him and he's not like even super good looking either to to salvage it that way I, I don't think Picard really has a, a likable trait on display in this episode, unless you also really hate children and just want to relate to him on that. Well, I, I think I think a lot of his agency was kind of pulled away from his character with the inclusion of Q. Uh, you know, just just by the nature of how, as as we'll see in the future, how episodes with Q tend to go. Um, not only because of the way his character is written, but because of the the strange influence Delancey has on the scripts for each of those episodes. It's like I, I almost hesitate to talk about it because I don't want to ruin the the Delancey magic. I know he is quite the following uh, amongst. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for for I, I I don't want to say for good reason, but for a reason, sure. Yeah, it's. So I think I mean, we we promised to give you guys the lore, and lore can be good, lore can be bad, lore can be exciting, and it can be baffling. Um. And there is a little bit of John Delancey lore that I believe is worth sharing. Um, when we first meet Q, he shows up uninvited on the, the bridge of the Enterprise, and he's, like, changing all of these costumes that he's wearing between different time points of human history. What many people don't know is that all of that, those costume changes, were not scripted at all. Uh, Delancey showed up on set with his own wardrobe, like a large suitcase. Yeah. And every time 
he we would rap on on a few lines of dialogue. He would just storm off the set, begin changing not a word to anybody. Uh, he, he insisted. He, he he was so insistent on dressing up for these scenes. Like that was never written into the script at all. Well, I don't know if you remember this, but the people from Wardrobe would come up to him and be like, "Uh, Mr. Delancey, we actually wanted you to, you know, wear this." And he would scoff at them and just as if he didn't right. even hear them, just keep going with what he was doing. The only right. the only pushback that we were successful in in getting was we were able to cut um, the scene where he dressed up as a 1940s SS officer because of how angry it had made Gene at the time. But everything else was allowed in the final cut. And, you know, in some ways, I think it really shaped where Q ultimately went as a character. So Right, right, because initially he was a much more, uh, I, I guess, I guess, threatening kind of antagonist. Right, the, the, the silliness it, and the playfulness. Delancey gave him a bit of flamboyance. Definitely. Which, uh, I mean, to be fair, to be fair, it made him a better character for sure, but it led to, uh, led to quite a few rewrites. Yeah. And a little bit, a little bit of tension on the set for sure. Whenever it was a Delancey a Q episode, I should say, um, the mood was markedly different on set. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 For sure. I mean, and not only that, but if people had to bend over backwards for, I don't know, because of a lot of his little eccentricities, right? Right. I mean, like, like, so oh, you remember the in this episode, right? The trial scene. Mm. And Q's Q's the judge. He's he's wearing that kind of flamboyant, uh, like I don't know, jester-looking outfit. Yeah, it was like bright red and black. He actually he I don't know if you remember this, but he showed up on set that day wearing it. He actually made that costume himself. He didn't take it off the entire day. I, I do he came think I and left that. in that costume. Yeah, absolutely bizarre. I have no idea what this guy does in his free time, but so. Anyway, the, my point is, he's sitting on that moving platform, right? And he kind of, like, descends towards Picard and everyone. And um, actually, kind of an ingenious little mechanism behind this this platform. It's, it's really just three guys pushing and pulling these levers around uh, to get him to go up and down. And um, between shoots, Delancey would kind of just sit on top of that platform and, and bark orders at these three guys, telling him to, you know... Go faster, go back, spin him around, do a 180. Absolutely insane. And they had to sit there and just put up with it. Um, they really earned their paycheck that day. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that, that was part of the overall effect that Delancey had on everybody. Once, especially once he established himself as Q, like a force that's going to be around, he had a lot more rope and uh, certainly ran with it. Right. I mean, yeah, especially as the show went, because how can you have TNG without Q? Exactly. And I ultimately had had a Voyager without Q. He just kept popping up in in different Star Trek places. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, he he kind of became his own little celebrity within this microcosm of TV. And uh, he definitely acted the part. He was able to parlay that into a permanent spot on the My Little Pony show. So really good for the Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, lots of Star Trek fans migrated to that show. Definitely, definitely. But that that courtroom scene is also worth talking about. Um, I there's not a lot in TNG that comes close to uh, mirroring just how baffling it is to to watch that scene. 
it's yeah because it, it, there's so many reasons that it like takes you out of i was gonna say otherworldliness but really star trek is all about going to other worlds that, that doesn't quite work but it, it just has a different tone than everything else like even the, the way the camera is is positioned yeah like, all the shots are kind of askew um, at, at some point there's one shot where like the cameraman's hand is is clearly in view of the camera i forgot about that oh my yeah it <laughs> we just kept going on about that like no one it, noticed it, it, it at feels the time. yeah 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 that's right that's right yeah um yeah yeah that scene that scene just in general i mean watching it watching it on tv it, it feels like it's part of a different show it really does. Um, There's... And, hmm. Oh yeah, no, I was I was just gonna comment on I mean, I think <laughs> one of the more jarring casting decisions uh was in that scene. Um uh, this definitely definitely not one of our proudest moments. Yeah as TNG crew. Um but we had these little these little people dressed as like bums and I, I guess I guess they were supposed to be Oriental. Yeah, and they were like um, they were supposed to be mutated nuclear war yeah, survivors. Yeah, right, 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 right. Yeah, Gene Gene wanted them to look like uh, like descendants of of people who had been through a nuclear war. So, um, we uh, we recruited most of them from a special needs halfway home. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, and and that was only out of necessity because. Uh, given given the, I guess copious amounts of of makeup and prosthetics, uh, the other characters needed, um, mm. makeup just did not have the bandwidth for this 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 number of extras. So we kind of just had to find them. Uh, Gene Gene called them naturals. It it was really unfortunate, but you know you can kind of see where they were coming from. Most episodes of Star Trek do not involve this amount of extras unless they're like just plain looking humans wearing, you know, random, right, right. regular clothes. Um, very rarely do you have to have, there was like two full bleachers just full of extras. It was, it was really, it was, it was a lot. It was, and you never, you never even see like that many Klingons, right. you know, like even in the Klingon episodes. The, the smell on set that day pretty wild it was trying it was trying i i i wish i was in delancey's seat at the top there's there's a lot of debate um about that scene because of how they had chosen to structure it um if you recall the the enterprise separates the saucer separates to do a saucer separation by the let's talk about that real quick let's talk about the saucer separation that's the, right re-watching that's right. this there was so much time dedicated to the saucer separation. A good two to three minutes of screen time of just the saucer separating and characters looking expectantly as waiting for it to separate. And right. I don't know if this was supposed to be a special effects um, showcase. Because obviously when you're on set, you can't... The special effects are made elsewhere. You know, you, you don't see mm -hmm. that being done live. But seeing the finished product it's such a waste of screen time like i don't know if they were forced into making this a two-parter and they had to make up like 10 minutes here and there or, or what 
but it is really trying to sit through. No, yeah, and the the saucer separation itself, I don't feel has ever been a defining trait of the Enterprise in any way. Right. I can't remember. I I know they do it again, but I can't remember in what context. I know they, and... they often have debates, like, when something's going wrong with the ship. It's like, well, we have to separate the saucer. And they're like, no, if you separate right, the saucer, right. all and these people will die. And... They never do it. Right. So, which which <laughs> makes you wonder why they did it this time, because they've... They've been in worse situations and not done that. I think most of the the why questions in the first episode, or really the first season, are just, we need to establish that this can do that. You know, we need to establish yeah. that the saucer can yeah. separate, so we have to separate it. No, that's fair. That's fair. But yeah, but it didn't I have think, to take three minutes. Right. No, I think you're right in that they they were they needed some some filler. Uh, because I and you know I guess I guess this is just an issue with the story of the episode as a whole. It's it's very it's very bland. Doesn't really go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and and even even considering that the saucer separation still brought the episode to a grinding halt. Very yeah. weird stuff. You you sit through it and you have these moments of the saucer separating. You have these moments of like Riker running around the holodeck for for three minutes and the... which which apparently he had never been in. Right. Riker's supposed to be this, you know, not not like an old veteran, but he is seasoned. You know, he's served on starships he's, before. Yeah, he has a history. He's the, he's the Kirk analog. He's the right. Kirk analog. And we're supposed to believe that he's never seen a holodeck before? Right, right. He has to be taught by, by Wesley Crusher. And Data. And Data. Yeah. Who... Never mind. Never. It's It's very, very weird stuff. But you were you were going to talk about you were going to talk about the the court scene. Yeah, yeah. So, in some respects, I like the court scene. Just to give my opinion on it first, I, I think that um, something courtrooms work well with what Star Trek TNG does. You know, it's definitely it's solving a problem through talking and reasoning and argumentation, which um, especially Picard really works well for. I mean, you have right. It's, it's a it's a, a good idea. Maybe it won't go so well. It's a good it's a good concept. I mean, humanity is on trial. Right. It's a, it's a good concept. Well, that's just the thing. Humanity is on trial. And if you look at the 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 characters that are in the courtroom scene, you have Jean-Luc Picard, human, Natasha Yar, human, um Troy, Betazoid, not quite human, but you know, maybe a little bit. Half human, actually. Half human. She's a half betazoid. And um Data, who's an android. And not at all human, as much as he wishes he was. Now, you might be saying, well, they just beamed aboard everybody who was on the separated Enterprise because that was for the people in the bridge, in the control room, and they just went on trial. But that's not entirely true, because the four of them are on the Enterprise, but there's a fifth person with them. Um, his character name is Colm, he later becomes O'Brien. Uh, he's also there with everybody, but he does not get beamed aboard for this humanity trial. Instead, they opt to take the android, Data. And we often asked questions about this on the set. Everybody noticed it immediately. And mm-hmm. I-, I went to Gene directly that day, and I, I asked him, I was like, well, you know, Data's not really a good representative of humanity. I mean, being that he's not human, why why isn't Colm there with him? And Gene looks at me, he's like, oh, that Mick bastard, human? He just kind of walked away after that. Um, yeah, yeah. It um, I'm. It never came up in the show, and I'm glad that 
that controversy never got to rear its head but it was it's difficult watching that scene now knowing the justification and the reasoning behind it you know and everybody is teleported back to the ship you know Colmes is sitting there and he's like oh you know saucer separation was a success or whatever he gives like some status update and um you know i wish you could have been there buddy i, I think i think you're human a shame yeah um i don't i don't think he i don't think gene ever actually interacted with that actor face to face no whenever his scenes were being shot gene would always go into the green room or take a smoke you know find some excuse to to walk outside Um, yeah and and we we kind of the crew all kind of had to just be okay with it yeah it's star trek is always hailed as being this you know, inclusive thing, you know, you look at the crew of the original series, you have a black, some whites, an Asian of some sort. Um, But that was always at the behest of the writers. Gene's vision was quite different from that. But to pitch it to the networks, who were quite progressive at the time, they needed to have this multicultural inclusive angle to it. And Gene just wanted his sci-fi to get made. And if, if, that had to be at odds with his personal views, then so be it, really. It, it was a means to right. an end. He didn't have to like it, but he did have to tolerate it. Right, right. Yeah, and... And go ahead. you kind of see the, the writers here carrying that same torch where the original Star Trek was, was very much about... Well, n- not about, but it was it was celebrated for its depiction of kind of racial harmony, right? Right. It had, quote-unquote, the first interracial kiss on television. Right, 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 right. And I guess, I guess in, in the same way, this series is kind of a celebration of um, neuroatypical people. Ah. Yeah, you, right? That's, that's, um, I see what so, you mean. Right, right. So, because each each member of the bridge, I mean, except for the um, the white men, which which Gene was adamant about them being quote you know neurotypical. Right. Um, each member of the bridge kind of has their own neurological disorder, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, data Data has, I guess, an autism analog, right? Um, Jordy is blind. Um, Worf suffers from BPD. Um, and that's, that's why when you get to Troy, yeah, it starts to get interesting because she, she's a betazoid, right? Right. She can, she, uh, she's a telepath. She's an empath, right? She's got some mind power, which basically, on. which basically does just come down to her being a telepath. Right. When the story, and needs I her to be. right. Right. And that's, that's it. I think, I think she gets a lot of criticism um from fans or or watchers of the show for how convenient or how how convenient her powers are in terms of being able to t- take her out of a story or put her back into it and and like her powers just kind of like don't matter sometimes or they don't work sometimes um and i guess what i'm trying to say is that she is neuroatypical for a betazoid Ah, you see what I'm saying? She's, and it, it's not really said in so many words because 
it's obviously a fictional race. Well, it, more light um, is shed on that in later seasons and later episodes where you meet other Betazoids and you see how they act compared to Troy. And it's always right, different. Right, right. Yeah, you come to the slow realization that Troy is a little bit slow. A little bit slow. Right. Well, so Slow for Betazoid and slow for human have different things going on, which is why she's able to serve on this human, mostly human crew. Uh, whereas in Betazoid society, everyone just kind of you know mocks her for using her for talking instead of using exclusively telepathic right, communication. Right, right, right. That's a great point. That's a great point. And you know, it's it's also why it's also why she she kind of presents, I guess, as a normal human being. And and what's what's always been interesting to me is that um, I think I mean obviously as you know, data data was conceived. Mm as i guess kind of a stand-in for the fans yes yes right? i distinctly remember hearing this during the conceptualization of the series right right it was it was the idea that god gene had gone to obviously several conventions by by this point and kind of gotten a feel for like what the who the fans were mm. and um was pretty into the idea of, of creating the stand-in character of Data who had autism, much like many of the fans, and had difficulty understanding complex emotional issues. Right. You know, um, even even moral issues, the moral issues the show brings up. So it was it was this contrast between Data and Troy. Data, who had autism, and Troy, who was an empath and oh. could sit there and explain things to Data. Right. right? And so, thus in, in many ways, them to the audience. Yes, in many ways, Troy is actually the audience's mother. Ah, you know that makes a lot of sense. Right. So, right. What's the real stroke of genius here is that Data is not—he's not an autistic human. He's an android who is basically, for all intents and purposes, uh, a sufferer of autism, but he's not actually. And the reason that this is genius. Is because Gene always makes it clear in his um, his like uh, series Bibles, right? Like the overlay of what the franchise is going to be. That by this right. point, humanity has employed eugenics enough to breed out things like autism and other low desirable traits, such that he was a fan of eugenics. Right, he was a fan of eugenics, such that they don't exist Gene. anymore. But if you want to say, how do we have an autistic character when that clashes with? Gene's vision of the future. Well, you make an android. You make somebody who is literally a robot instead of, you know, metaphorically. Um, so it's a really, really good idea on the writer's part to, yeah, to, to write absolutely it genius. Yeah, Gene. Yes. Haha. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So, can I? There's the whole Betazoid thing. There's a there's one thing that's special about them. You know, you look at Klingons. They have their foreheads you ha you look at um the ferengi they have their big ears uh the betazoids also have a distinct trait about them but some people don't even notice it like do you remember what what makes the betazoids special what sets them apart oh my god uh, give me a second did they have something like that they did so all the betazoids in the series um starting with troy in this episode and it, it every single one that pops up afterwards they all have black eyes like pitch black eyes you look oh at data he's got God. yellow eyes the betazoids have black eyes now i know what right. you're i know what you're thinking 
in that that's a really, really low impact um, physical difference. And like I said, most people don't even notice it at first. And that's true. Um, initially, they wanted to make something a little more, you know, intense, like give them kind of like a, a, a enlarged frontal lobe to connect with their telepathy and empathy. But um, makeup, like we were saying, they were quite inundated at the time. They did not have the resources to make that for the pilot. So somebody, I forget their name, but they really innovated here. They took one of Data's yellow contacts that they had prepared and they took a magic marker and colored it black. And like, this is going to be the Betazoid. And it, the thing is, like, Troy's ha Troy is half human, so it's okay if her difference is a little, physical difference is a little smaller, and that was their right, rationale. Right. But we didn't have time to, to secure, like, actual black contact lenses in time for the pilot. So we had to use those data ones that were covered over in black magic marker. But the thing is that, oh. yeah, the black marker dries that out. That can't be good. No, it dries out the contact lenses, and when uh, Marina Sirtis was wearing them, she would often tear up because of the pain that the dry contact lens was putting on her eyes. Now, oh! this this is like an accidental genius moment because the only time in the pilot where the camera is zoomed in on Troy, and you can notice this, is when she's having one of her empath um, scenes, like when she's supposed to be connecting with the mind of somebody else. Right, right. So those tears look like she's so overcome with the emotion of whatever she's connecting with empathically. And it's 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 an accident, but it works to the show's benefit in, in an amazing way. And the thing about Marina Sirtis is that she can't cry on command. We would often ask her to do it throughout um, different episodes of the show that focused on Troy. Right, but, <clears throat> right. Yeah, her she was a little bit limited in that respect, but when you can make it happen artificially and use that to your it's just it's just magic. That is That's yeah T V yeah. magic. That is that is definitely T V magic. Yeah, I, I I noticed I noticed Marina crying on like I, I, I distinctly remember this. Because mm -hmm. I noticed Marina crying on the set quite a bit in the filming of this episode. But I always kind of just chalked it up to uh the the I guess you might call them inappropriate advances from both Delancey and Jean at the same time. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the darker parts of uh, the show's history, but it's it's something that was there from the beginning and never quite cooled off. Yeah, well, I mean, it just, especially when Delancey would come back, obviously, as we already talked about, the, 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 the atmosphere of the whole set would change, and, and that was one of those aspects, but having Jean here for the whole season... Oh my god! It definitely did not help with that, and and you know, going going full speed into this pilot with both of them. A, I mean, a for pilot example, is already for tense just because it's a new right. thing. You, you're with new right. coworkers. You have a deadline, um, especially for a double feature pilot, and to add this right. stress on, Jesus Christ! Could right. you imagine? Could you imagine if Gene was around for season six with how that production went? Oh my god! Oh my god! Fuck. I I don't think we would have made it. I think that would have been it. That would have been it for the show. That's it. I don't but mean it's to like, celebrate the man's death, but no, no, not at not at. I mean, there were plenty of great things about him. Mm. Um, you know, in the same way that there were great things about Delancey as well. But you know, everyone has their faults. Everyone That's has true. their faults. When you have such a unique and almost inspiring vision to a lot of people, you, you get a lot more room to play with. You know. You don't. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. People are people are a little more 
uh, more want to kind of excuse your eccentricities like that. Like, like, and, if, you know, like, plus it was, it was a different time. It, it was. But imagine if, like, LeVar showed up to set and, like, he was the one doing all... He would have been gone in a second. It's like, yeah, oh, that, that would have been it. Some random blind guy, you're out of here. That would have been it. Yeah. But you... I mean, you remember the season one outfits. <laughs> right? For the women. Jesus Christ, do I remember those. Of course I remember another those. another jean story. It's obviously another jean story. Yeah, I mean... He, he so yeah, insistent. He was so insistent. So insistent that... All of the women on the starship wear these like high skirt, like go go boots uniforms. It's and ridiculous, it, even by sci fi standards. Like, there's no way you can insane. justify this. Absolutely not. Just the way that, and I mean, maybe it was a holdover from classic Trek, but I think audience tastes by then had kind of leveled this out. But I don't even think anyone on the production team even liked them. But Gene was over the moon for these things. He wouldn't let. Do you it remember go. Denise Crosby? Do you oh. remember Denise Crosby? This is such an. I feel so bad for her. Like how? Uh, you go I on. Mean, you tell it. You tell all it. right, you all right. It. So Denise Crosby, if you don't know, she plays Tasha Yar. Um, first day of shooting, everybody you know did the makeup, they go to costume wardrobe, they show up, and at some point, you know, Gene stops by the set. He was a little bit late that day, but you know, it's whatever. He didn't want to stick around if makeup was going to take an extra long time, so he comes late. And he sees the cast. And, you know, they're all meeting, greeting, doing handshakes. And then he sees Denise. And he looks at her in that uniform with the, the high skirt and the boots. And he, the revulsion on his face was immediately apparent. Um, didn't even make an attempt to hide it. Like, everybody else in the room could feel, like, the tension between the two of them, Denise and Jean. And all Jean could say was a curt request to go change into one of the men's uniforms with the pants and the, the long sleeve shirts and mm -hmm. and she professional didn't say it didn't say a word she just went to go change if she felt um hurt by the incident didn't didn't make it known um i know she's talked about a little bit of this at conventions um saying yeah. how part of the reason she left the show was all of the the you know enmity between her and gene and I think that's where it really started. Um, right. There's also a little I bit mean, of envy and how there. Could it not? What was that? I was just going to say, you know, how, how could it not? If, yeah, yeah. There's a little bit know, of envy between how, you know, how uh, tense her relationship with Gene was and all of the love and adoration and uh, advances he would shower on Marina. And right, right. What some people know this is kind of a well-known anecdote is that the, the two of them actually auditioned for each other's roles and then gene switched them so that initially oh. marina sirtis uh auditioned to play the security officer and denise had auditioned to play the the ship's counselor and gene thought that the other ones would be better in each other's roles and uh it's quite a deep web of interactions right there and it's not very clean you can see why denise was kind of pushed out of the show once gene died we started bringing her back in different guest spots uh, which she was happy to do um but yeah it was a rough road getting there right right and i mean <laughs> no, no matter which one of them he was interacting with on set that day whether it was whether it was denise or whether it was marina um I think I think we as the crew were consistently taken aback with his behavior. Yeah, it a lot of tongue biting, I would say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
definitely. A lot of a lot of uh, awkward looking around at each other, trying to catch each other's eyes. Yeah, it's um, it was a shared moment of like, you seeing this like for real? Yeah. Incredu- <laughs> incredulity, whatever incredulousness. Yeah, yeah. Incred- incredulity. I suppose. Um, but it was a feeling that was shared amongst everybody. But you know, when you're the boss, you're the boss, and Gene was the boss. More ways than one. Oh, yes, he was. So, he had an unreal amount of influence over the show. One of the more controversial aspects of TNG um, was the character of Wesley Crusher. To this day, people are still in forums and Reddit posts bemoaning uh, Wesley Crusher's... Yeah, um, yeah there's a lot of, a lot of hate. Show. A lot of hate. Yeah, and it's like, oh, it's a Wesley episode. It sucks. Or like, oh, why is this stupid kid talking? Like, whatever. But... The origin story of that character, um, Gene at the time was seeing this woman and as a way of like uh, currying favor with her, he said, oh, you know, your son's an actor. I can make a role for him on my television series. And wouldn't you know it, that role ultimately became Wesley Crusher. Um, It was very transparent on set. Uh, The writers had finished the script. And they were ready, and they were working on future scripts for the series. And everything was ready to go into production when Gene comes in and says, Guys, we got to add this new character um, for this random teen actor who nobody's ever heard of before, but he's going to be on our major network show for some reason. Everybody knew what the story was. Um, Mm -hmm. Around the writer's room, uh, instead of, you know, referring to him as boss man, as he usually liked to be called, Everybody started using the nickname Gene Rod in her Barry for his uh, sexual <laughs> proclivities with women. That, That's right. It, it's, it's amazing. Um, but <laughs> you're a paid professional. You just go along with it. That's a running theme yeah. amongst Star Trek The Next Generation's early production is, uh, is just deal with it. Yeah. Yeah, these, these early episodes... Uh, they were fun to make in their own ways because of how ridiculous it could get. Yeah. And and, and ridiculous in a way that only Gene could bring. He had... But... Oh, go ahead. Yeah, you go. You go. I was going to say, one of the more ridiculous things about the early TNG, where Gene had the most influence, was how they would try to ramp up the sci-fi by, by using, like, fake words and fake titles for the characters and a great example of this is in encounter at farpoint where we meet like the leader of this satellite nation and he's called like the groppler his name's groppler the groppler yeah the groppler right and instead of being the president or the the governor whatever he's a groppler and later tng does not do any of this like all the ships if they're romulan klingon whatever they all have captains um they have like chancellors instead of grapplers it's a really lazy way of creating an alien atmosphere and it doesn't even make yeah, sense yeah. in the lore of the show when you're like oh everybody's got these universal translators so it's like exactly what? yeah yeah i mean we'll see that that rule broken quite a bit of course but um yeah i mean grappler sounds like a muppet it does it, it i'm not really sure what he was thinking there but and it's one word, I, uh, one letter off from grappler, like a wrestler. It's there's a lot of yeah, questions yeah. that it leaves. It's 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 a little a little too on the nose. Hmm. Oh, whatever that nose may be, no one will ever know. No, but the nose knows. 
So, but <laughs> the um another nitpicky thing that I kind of want to talk about because I'm a nitpicker and I like to pick nits. Um, this whole the whole thrust of this episode is that the Q continuum via Q is going to test and put humanity on a trial for being quote unquote savage. And right. when you hear this, or when I hear this, all I think about is, well, what about the other races of the galaxy? Did they put did they put, <laughs> did they put the Klingons on trial for being a savage race? How did that go? Yeah, and that's the thing because the Klingons should obviously. I mean, the Klingons are just human, like barbarians. Right. They're, they're like an analog to like a warrior, a tribe of humans. Regardless so, of their sophistication, they're definitely savage. I mean, they solve everything 100%. by combat. Yeah. And it's it's a symptom of this, like, hu- focus on humanity thing that, that permeates Star Trek TNG. Yeah. Like, everything is always done and focused on well, humans it's, via it's that conflict. It's that conflict between between the human race in Star Trek as a whole being presented as you know, moving past prejudice, past the need for money, and that kind of thing. It's it's the con- conflict of that um, with the fact that they need to make a show where moral dilemmas are prevented, or presented, rather. Right. And um, by all accounts, every single other race in the galaxy should have been judged before humanity. Like, <laughs> humanity does virtually nothing wrong compared to, uh, you know, the Romulans, the Klingon. Right. Uh, right? The Ferengi. All we see of the humans are how they're always the, the poor victim of somebody else's intergalactic sabotage or whatever, you know? Exactly. And suddenly they're the savages. Like, I get it. This is a show shown, shown to humans, so humans have to relate to it, and you can't... It's hard to relate to the struggles of, you know, uh, a race of, like, sentient gas. You know, I get it. Um, But Star Trek is also, like, a pretty heady sci-fi series that tries its best to make some amount of sense. It's not like uh, an action show with sci-fi trappings. It's actual science fiction. So my expectations are higher for something like this. But... It's things like this take me out of it completely. Um, I think I think they deal with this particular problem much better going forward mm. because I think I think the issue here is again with the Q character where he just kind of suddenly shows up in front of Picard ready to judge humanity whereas most of the other kind of moral dilemmas presented with that theme in mind, it tend to begin with like the enterprise entering some kind of contested space or something like that. You know what I mean? Like, like they, they, they instigated. not necessarily sought it out. They instigated it. Exactly. It, like, and not intentionally, but mm. that's, that's where the conflict comes in. That, that makes sense. In this case, they just didn't do anything. Like no one did anything. And Q just showed up and, and, and for Q to be this omniscient entity that can do anything. And, judge humans in a particular way versus again the klingons it it doesn't really make much logical sense within its own world what what really adds insult to injury is how inconsequential the whole um trial and testing humanity thing is because 
no part of Q's meddling nor what Picard learns during that process impacts how the crew handles the situation that they're confronted with. Like they have yeah. this, they have this encounter at Farpoint Station, and whether or not Q had showed up, the crew would likely have all done the exact same things that they did, and it robs this this trial of all of its weight. Now the writers learn from this, and like the best example of this being done correctly is at the very end of the series and what I'm sure is an intentional parallel. But yeah, this time nobody, it just felt like these events were, were fated to play out this way rather than somebody learning something and, and changing. And uh, that means there's no progression. There's no real arc. It's just a bunch of rather boring series of events and then two jellyfish pop out right 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 and and q begs picard to yeah yeah shoot them that that was the most most disappointing part um once they're solving the issue and like humanity is clearly going to be kind and redeem themselves instead of like um just accepting things or really anything because really what is q's motivation here he he becomes like a pe a petulant child just begging picard to fall into a trap in the most non-clever obvious way possible when really as as an omniscient being q should kind of be above emotions in general and yeah or, yeah he never really acts like that going forward he's just like you know if, if picard quote wins he just he's just like whatever right it's fine and he leaves yeah and it's it's just so jarring. I don't know if this is colored by knowing where the Q character goes, but I do like to think that anybody just watching only this episode will also look at that moment a bit strange. Like, why is basically a god here just on his knees begging somebody to make a mistake? It's like, if you're on yeah, again, it's, it's another you couldn't yeah, be right. more clever about this? Like, I, I get trying right. to... to poison the well or you know rig things in your favor but this is like the least clever way of doing that it's really dumb yeah yeah and like you said the narrative really goes nowhere i guess it's kind of just an introduction to these characters but you didn't need you know the fact that it was a two-parter right you didn't need two parts to introduce all of the characters um you might have needed no. two episodes, but you didn't need to make it one story of doing that when the story that you have does not lend itself to that amount of time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it goes so far as to make you think why this show got picked up to begin with. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's easily one of the worst episodes of TV I've ever watched. And this season is basically the worst season of the show. Yes. Well, we all know why that is. Well, we all know why that is, but it's it, when you're the viewer and you're at home and you're like, "Oh, what do I tune into tonight?" You don't you don't know the backstory of why these things went this way. Right. All you don't, you don't make concessions for that. Right. You just think, "Wow, this show kind of sucks. I'm not going to watch it." Yeah. So, yeah. I I think Star Trek the Next Generation really benefited from being a Star Trek property rather than just like Space Force Five or whatever, some random, mm -hmm. random thing without a, without a franchise attached to it. People who grew up on Star Trek had nostalgia for it. They probably looked at TNG with um, 
a lot softer uh, eyes. So thank God for that, though. Thank God for that. Kept it, us employed, huh? I was going to say, it was nice to not, not go poor for the seven, eight year span. <laughs> Do you have anything else you want to add on Encounter at Farpoint Station? Um, I don't think I do. I don't think I do. Do you have any more any more behind the scenes stuff? I got one, and it's the silliest thing you can imagine, and it's almost embarrassing in a way how basically everybody and the crew was culpable to this. So the first draft, and almost the final draft, what was supposed to be the final draft of the script throughout that whole run, the title of it was Encounter at Near Point Station. And the idea was that this was a space station that was in our solar system, like the real right. our solar system, and it was very close to Earth. And uh, the story was basically the same, but it would take place just close to Earth for whatever reason. And everybody thought this was okay. And then Delancey shows up on set to, to shoot things, and he's you know reading the script again after he memorized it. And he's just kind of voicing out loud his thoughts, and he's like, really? Encounter at near point station, they can go anywhere in the galaxy and they're still in the solar system. And everybody on set kind of had this collective moment of, oh yeah. And then it was hastily rewritten right there. So I well, I mean, you know, never never say Gene doesn't have his moments, right? Right. If if we're gonna, you know, shed some 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 of the dirty laundry of other people we gotta talk about how we ourselves are also culpable in not bringing this up earlier so of course yeah egg was on our face too that time but hopefully that's a little bit of levity to end things and uh that will about do it for this first episode of the readier room uh i implore everybody to join us next time where we tackle episode two of season one and until then everybody Stay ready. The troublesome little man child. Consider that in the history of many worlds, there have always been disposable creatures. Beginning, 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 beginning.